0: Hello and welcome to When It Goes Wrong, the podcast exploring disasters, accidents and times when everything falls apart. I'm Jasmine, your host, and on this two-part series, we'll be discussing the 1999 Columbine High School massacre, in which two boys attempted to bomb and then shoot students at their school. Alongside this, we'll also be touching on two linked events, the Oklahoma City bombing in 1995 and the Virginia Tech shooting in 2007. So this is part one of this two-part series. Before I jump in to all the details, I'll do my usual reminders at the beginning of the show. Uh, Do follow me on Instagram. I'm at whenitgoeswrongpod over there. And I'd love to see you. And then, then, yeah, let's go into this. This is one that I have been really fascinated with with, for a really long time. But I just, I think, I don't say it enough, but (laughs) we have to remember when we're talking about sad things like this... We talk about them for a reason because hopefully we've learnt a lot from them. And hopefully by like talking about it and understanding it more, it means that we can prevent stuff like this happening in future, right? So, yeah, just, just to add a bit of positivity before we go down the uh, quite depressing rabbit hole into this saga many, I, I need to start, but I'm going to start putting trigger warnings at the beginning of these episodes. Many, many for this. Suicide, drinking, violence, death, all of the above. So yeah, just keep that in mind before we start talking about it. And I'm going to do this episode, well, there's two parters, slightly differently. So I'm going to start with the actual event. So the actual shooting, the massacre, everything like that. And then talk a bit about uh, the Oklahoma City bombing, which influenced it. And then a bit about Eric and Dylan and kind of who they were and then on next week's episode we will talk about their motivations why they did it why we think they did it uh, lots of kind of analysis of the event and then we'll also touch on the Virginia Tech shootings in the second episode as well so that's hopefully the split that we will go with but yes let's start at the top uh, and go back to the day itself which was April 20th, 1999. And Eric Harris and Dylan Klebold got up very early, as usual, near six o'clock to head to school. And it was actually four days later than they planned to do their massacre. Uh, They originally wanted to do it on the 16th, which was the anniversary of the Oklahoma City bombings. But uh, they didn't because they forgot to get some ammunition and things like that. So they left home really early and went uh, with two very large duffel bags full of giant bombs and put them in the cafeteria. And they had planned where to put them. So they put them in two specific spots that they knew would hopefully hit, hopefully from their point of view, hit the most people possible. So yeah, they this was like... Super early in the morning. I always found that I found that weird when I I lived in America and I went to school there for a year and a bit. And the days like school starts so early over there. I found it very odd um, that school started at like seven, but not not the case uh, in most of the rest of the world. But yes, so they were up super early and no one noticed. You know, no one. It wasn't odd that they were up that early. And uh, they used to sometimes do bowling that early, which makes sense for a certain film title. And so, yeah, so they did that first. And then once they had dropped those bags off, they drove kind of slightly out of town and they missed all the morning classes that they would normally go to. And they put two backpacks full of pipe bombs and propane bombs in a field nearby. And the plan with that was that those would go off earlier than planned, earlier than the other ones in the school, and that would draw away the emergency responders and the police from getting to the school in, in very quick time. Uh, it meant that everyone would be distracted whilst they carried on what they were doing elsewhere. So once they had those, they moved off, they got ready with their designed outfits. Uh, so camo, black, one wore a T-shirt that said Wrath, uh, that kind of thing. They attached guns and all their weapons to themselves and then kind of hid them under large trench coats or dusters to conceal exactly what they were carrying They then got into their cars and at this point again each car was packed with explosives ready to go off at the end of the attack and they parked in opposite sides of the car park of the school car park and the idea with this was that when 911 and help did arrive then the bombs would go off in the car parks which is potentially where they would be stationed. So you can see lots of Lots of thought and planning going into that uh, and that would ideally kind of target potentially those that were fleeing um, or coming in for help. On their way in, Harris saw a guy called Brooks Brown when he got out of his car. And Brooks Brown was a guy that he'd had a few disputes with, and we'll talk about those later, but he had recently kind of resolved some of them. And so it was reported that Eric told Brooks that nothing matters anymore and to get out of the school now. And Brooks Brown didn't really, like, think much of it because, as we'll talk about, they clearly talked a lot of questionable things, who you just kind of thought it was weird, but then carried on with your day. So he headed out. And so what they decided was that after careful planning that the bomb, the first bomb that they planned in the cafeteria, should go off at the busiest lunchtime, lunchtime A at 11.14. Again, a weird point for those of you that didn't go to school in America. They, first of all, have lunch really early at 11.14. And then second, they, like, tranch Because there's so many students in the school, they would, like, tranch their school lunches. So, like... You'd have like the first lunch of like a third of the students and then the second and then the third um, based on like people's schedules and that kind of thing, which I also found odd. But maybe that's just like a bigger school thing. Maybe they do do it in other countries for bigger schools. But when I went to school elsewhere, we just all had the same lunch time. But anyway, it was, the so the first time they had determined was the busiest time, and so they wanted to time it with that, and their plan was that the bombs would go off, uh, and then they would both get out of their cars, perfectly parked, so that they could see what each other was doing, and then go in and shoot everyone else. So they got out of their cars, it was clear that the bombs had not gone off, but that didn't stop them from continuing on. So on the entrance to the school, they started shooting people and they killed a few people that were sitting outside the school. And it took a a while for people to kind of understand what was happening. So they thought it was potentially a paintball gun, senior prank, that type of thing. Uh, They didn't really realize exactly what was happening, but soon... The reality became clear. Harris and Klebold started throwing pipe bombs and generally there was havoc everywhere. People knew that the two gunmen were shooting and obviously everyone panicked as much as they could and so students, teachers all kind of tried to flee throughout the building, get out, hide, all of that type of thing. The first act that the boys did was to go towards the cafeteria and check on the bombs which had failed to detonate. And they kind of like prodded them and stuff and saw if they could kind of get them working, but they didn't. Uh, so they just kind of threw some pipe bombs around instead. Also, just to know, I kind of debated for ages whether I should say boys or not, or men. But they were, I mean, I think one of them was only just 18. And for the majority of the story that we're going to talk about, they were a lot, lot younger. So I'm going to go with boys, but you know what I mean, the, the gunmen. So... They. A few minutes after this had started, uh, the police got alerted super quickly. We were in the time of some mobile phones at this point. So. Police were alerted and luckily the bombs in the field mainly didn't really go off. Um, One kind of did and started a small fire, which the fire service visited. But yeah, they didn't really make it much of a distraction at all. So police were on the scene very quickly and there was an officer who was kind of stationed nearby to the school and he started shooting back at Harris once once he saw them and they had a kind of shoot off, but neither was successful. And clearly, at this point, just absolute total panic in the school itself. And um, students were had either managed to run run out and were successfully evacuated, but they were hiding. They were hiding in tables, cupboards. Uh, some had had gone into locked um, offices and, and locked the door or barricaded the door, uh, all of that type of thing. So it was really clearly an absolutely terrifying time for everyone that was still in the school. Um, And they just seem to, both the boys just seem to be kind of firing randomly around everything, sometimes hitting people, sometimes just kind of firing into empty rooms and stuff. At some point, Eric shot someone with a shotgun uh, and it kicked back onto him and broke his nose. So he was clearly in a lot of pain, but continued on. I find it quite hard doing the the bad bit at the beginning. (laughs) I feel like we've gone from zero to intense massacre without any build-up. But yeah, we will continue. So the library, which was directly up, the ca- up above the cafeteria, still had students hiding inside and the government made their way up there and kind of thought that it was, it was kind of in a good location where they could fire out the windows to like where the police were and where they had a good viewpoint of what was going on outside. So they went up there thinking it was kind of a stronghold and they fired out the windows towards the police and there were still quite a lot of people in the room kind of 50 plus students and they just seemed to kind of fire at random and we know a lot about what happened in the library because a lot of students did survive and so there's a lot of like real first person accounts of exactly what they did but it did seem to th- seem to kind of be totally random so they They kind of called out repeatedly for jocks or for kind of people wearing white hats who uh, were the the athletes at the school. So they were calling out for them, kind of shouting that all of those people would die. Uh, They found one black student and immediately killed him. And they just, yeah, just went around kind of randomly killing, asking people. They asked one student if she believed in God and she said yes. And then they... Just left her. It was just it, there was no pattern or anything to all of this. It was just chaos, and they almost seemed to like be really odd in their response. I mean, who's going to be normal in this situation? But they kind of went between like total elation, yelling that this is like the best thing they've ever done, Yahoo, to almost kind of boredom. And so by 12 p.m., 45 minutes after this had started, again, they just seemed, I don't know, bored or like just down off the, off the kind of really manic bit. They, this was like their quiet period, they say, as part of the attack. And they just kind of wandered empty halls. Um, they've set fire into a cupboard, um, which as they then walked off, a teacher ran out and put it out. They fired randomly back into empty classrooms. went back down to the cafeteria again and tried to get the bombs to go off, kind of firing at them, throwing pipe bombs at them, playing around. They stopped and like took drinks from some random drinks that they found in the cafeteria. Uh, And we know this because there were video recordings in the cafeteria, which has led to some very creepy footage. So yeah, they were just in this like weird quiet phase. But clearly... Uh, the police were still outside and they were now supported by the SWAT team and they thought that there was potentially an active government and hostages inside so they they did the plan of how to how to tackle this by looking at that and going okay there's hostages inside we're not gonna storm the school we're gonna go slowly. And so they focused on kind of getting people out, trying to trying to get as many people as they could away from the school. But they didn't they didn't storm it in any way. So Harris and Klebold made their way back to the library, uh, where thankfully the remaining living students had all managed to evacuate out of a out of a back door. And they basically took themselves off into one of the corners, and they each killed it themselves, um, by 1208, so less than an hour after it began. After their deaths, clearly no one knew that they were dead, uh, because... Why would they? So the SWAT team kind of slowly entered, made their way through the school, securing each area and binding students um, as they went and and helping them out. Uh, They didn't know the government had killed themselves, but by 3 p.m. their bodies had been found and the school fully evacuated. So you can see it took quite a long time really to get through the school and to get and kind of secure it in the way that they wanted to the bomb squad soon entered um, and to to kind of fully clear the school of the bombs obviously the two main main bombs didn't go off uh, they found the bombs in the cars which also didn't go off uh, and they had to do a really large sweep uh, to make sure that there were no, nothing nothing still around which could which could blow anyone up This overall resulted in 13 deaths, uh, plus the two gunmen, uh, so 15 in total, um, and at least 24 people injured, some very severely, which would impact them for the rest of their lives, uh, some who who recovered afterwards. And this is what I didn't realise when I always thought about Columbine, is that you think about Columbine as a school shooting, at least I did. But in reality, what Columbine was, is it was a failed bombing. It was not really a shooting. Yes, they did shoot and they did kill some people. And that Well, that's the only way they kill people. But in reality, what they wanted to do was they wanted to bomb the school. And they wanted to bomb so big that they would kill. Um, they kind of said that they wanted to make it the deadliest attack in UK, US history. And that is a very important distinction, I think, to go from a school shooting to actually being a failed bombing I think it changes the way at least I looked at this and the way in which we should analyse it. So Speaking of bombing, and before I go into Eric and Dylan, which I will do, and their kind of background and motivation, I wanted to talk about one of the their defining moments in their lives and potentially the main inspiration for this attack, which was the Oklahoma City bombing. Uh, Like I said, if we take this as a failed bombing attempt, then this potentially changes the motivations. And the Oklahoma City bombing was a huge event which happened in 95, 95, so only four years before this. And clearly they do reference it quite a lot in their writings and stuff, but clearly influenced them and and, and inspired this because this was in a pretty form formational is that a word pretty fundamental oh nope um a pretty important time in their in their kind of growing up and so it was 95 this happened in 99 so we're talking you know 14 15 they would have been so yeah i think it's an important thing for us to cover and yes another another very sad story to be honest So the Oklahoma City bombing was done by two men, Timothy McVeigh and Terry Nichols, who met during U.S. Army training. And they were influenced by two big events, potentially ones I'll cover in future, but we will see. Uh, The first one being Ruby Ridge, in which there was an 11-day standoff between police and a man called Randy Weaver, which was very much about kind of... They'd gone to um like serve an arrest warrant on them or do a search, something like that. And then they basically like created this big standoff um in terms of Sorry if you can hear the cat mearing, Um in terms of what, what had happened. And then as part of the standoff, it actually led to his wife and his son both being killed by an FBI sniper, which was clearly very sad if you haven't read the book educated by tara westover i highly recommend it not linked to this at all but it is that talks about ruby ridge and it's an excellent book so i do recommend that um and then uh They were also inspired by Waco in which a religious sect had a 51 day standoff with the FBI who again wanted to come in and search the compound for weapons Uh, and the FBI eventually kind of tried to gas the people inside which resulted in this huge fire and basically everyone died so there were 76 deaths. And these two events were seen by the two bombers as kind of the government overstepping its bounds, the government's trying to make, to have too much power and to have too much control over private citizens. So they decided that they would bomb a government building in response to this uh, in order to, to kind of make a statement about what they thought. And so the two men stole bought all of the material for the bombs and they stored them in sheds. Uh, It cost them about five grand to to get them all. They did similar to Dylan and and Eric. They kind of built some, detonated a bomb in the desert to test it. uh, And then they eventually decided on the location of the building to blow up. Uh, They picked this one because it had government agencies within it first of all they were like oh we wanted to just destroy a building but then they decided that actually they wanted to destroy a building with people in it Uh, and they picked this one because it had quite a large car park around it and the idea was that it would mean that hopefully only the government building would be the one that was impacted not not the others around they built that bomb and in a van and it was huge absolutely huge. So it's th- it had 13 barrels in this van and each barrel weighed nearly 500 pounds. So you can see the just sheer amount of explosives and fuel and material and everything that they had within this bomb. Then on April 19th, 1995 at 9am, McVeigh drove to the building where Nichols had stashed a getaway car in the car park. And he had a load of propaganda and stuff within his car that kind of like spouted his cause. Quotes like, when the government fears the people, there is liberty. When the people fear the government, there is tyranny. And he lit the five minute and the two minute fuse on his bomb and then basically ran out and drove away. And that bomb ended up going off and it ended up killing 168 people with many more hundreds being injured. And most actually weren't just from the bomb itself, but from the building collapsing um, because the bomb kind of hit the bottom columns and then it caused the whole building to collapse. And it was just really sad. It was a really sad one because it was like a like a crash in the bottom, like right near where the bomb went off. So, yeah, it was just all very, um, very sad. But luckily the two were picked up very quickly because they left a lot of evidence in the van and evidence of renting it, all that kind of thing. Uh, and McVeigh was sentenced to death and executed in 2001. Uh, and he was the first federal death in almost 40 years for, done by the federal government. Uh, Nichols, who obviously built the bomb but didn't, didn't do the exact bombing, uh, was sentenced to life in prison with no chance of parole. And so you can see that this was like clearly a very important event in Eric and Dylan's lives and Harris especially saw this as this kind of like amazing act that had been done by these other people and this thing that he very much wanted to improve on in terms of how many people he impacted. So yes, let's dig into the backstories then on Eric and Dylan. (laughs) So both Gummer were born in 1981. Eric Harris moved around a lot as a child. His dad was in the Air Force, but they eventually settled in Colorado uh, when his dad retired from the military. And Eric was generally described as reasonably popular, like he did have a reasonable circle of friends. He was described by people as nice, likeable, uh, but he was also very quick to anger. And he reportedly said that he was able to convince anyone of anything. And there are a lot of thoughts on Eric and what his diagnoses are, which we will touch on later. Dylan Klebold, on the other hand, was born and grew up in Colorado. His parents were religious and he grew up going to the Lutheran church with them. And Eric and Dylan met each other in the seventh grade and grew closer throughout the years until their junior year of high school. Junior year for those not American. It's like year 11. It's like the second to last year. Year 11 in the UK, year 12 in New Zealand, I think. And they, alongside uh, obviously going to school together, they also worked together at Blackjack Pizza nearby. Dylan was kind of very opposite to Eric. He was often described as very shy. He was very quiet around other people um, and very quiet especially around people that he didn't know very well uh, and also uh, girls. (laughs) Um, And he was also very quick to anger. And the thing with this case, and I think why it became so... I don't know, popular is the right word, Word, but why it's so well known is that there was just so much evidence and content left by the killers. Um, and because there was so much evidence and content and, and things that really brought this crime to life, I think that's really what captured people and what led to, and I mean, even from my point of view, being able to read all this stuff and see things and see photos and see writing and see all this stuff that clearly came directly from them, I think makes it more interesting because you can really, start to like dig into into them and what what they did and what they thought. They both kept diaries and they both filmed many clips together. We'll talk about both of those. and Eric also had a public website where he pushed published a lot of very questionable thoughts, which I think is very much sign of the times isn't it in 1999, but there weren't many people with websites so it probably wasn't very well um, read. So yeah, so they were they were really good friends growing up, and in the early years they also had another close friend called Zach, um, and they were also good friends with with that guy mentioned, Brooks Brown, and they would often all sleep over at each other's houses. But they got into a lot of mischief, which you know, as you would potentially expect from from teenagers. Uh, and they would go out into the neighborhood at night. They would sneak out at night and go out on certain missions. They called them missions, uh, and they would like. Generally, just cause havoc, throw paint at staff, vandalize things, that kind of thing. And Eric Dylan and Zach were suspended once from school because they started breaking into other other people's lockers. So yeah, they were generally just not not behaving the way that you would hope. But Zach, eventually, he got a girlfriend and then he kind of distanced himself from the other two, uh, which is why. And that happened, you know, a couple of years before the clearly the planning started for this, this event. So he disappeared earlier on. Eric, growing up, was then previously reported to the police for a variety of things. So he fell out with Brooks Brown over um, over things that don't make huge amounts of sense um and he broke brooks's car i think and then brooks went over to eric's house and kind of told his parents all these things that he was up to so he was like oh eric's you know doing all these bad things they're sneaking out at night they were drinking a lot of alcohol at that time that type of thing and generally being a bit of trouble so informed eric's dad who was not pleased and brooks brown's mum just generally thought that Eric was clearly trouble and repeatedly reported him to the police because he was kind of threatening Brooks at this point and making kind of scary comments and stuff. So, yeah, they, they were kind of repeatedly reporting him to the police, but they didn't really do much about it. And some of the reports kind of linked to... Um, to Eric's website where he wrote pages and pages and pages which you can read about all the types of people he hated, uh, just went on general rants about the kind of awfulness of of humans and how um, all humans should be eradicated, all this kind of stuff. Um, And he did write also about his bomb making. So at this point, he started making a lot of bombs and he even posted on his website, if you haven't made a CO2 bomb today, I suggest you do. And there was a good quote in one of in the book that i read which i'll reference in the next episode but it's called which i thought summed eric up quite well um and then he said eric loved explosions actively hated inferiors and passively hoped for human extinction and that really sums up what his writings and things really kind of said said over that time So whilst Eric was kind of writing publicly on the internet and doing that type of thing, Dylan started his first diary. And that was called, he called it Existences, a virtual book. And from the beginning, there weren't any real allusions to violence, not in the same way that Eric was in terms of what he was doing. Dylan's book was much more a diary of sadness and anger. And that was very much directed at himself and he was very suicidal and he was suicidal for a long time he eventually fell in love with one of the girls in his class um who i don't have their full their actual name but in the book they use the pseudonym of harriet and he fell in love with this girl called harriet and kind of wrote extensively about her and how much he loved her and how he wished it wished it was returned that types of thing but I think seemingly she wasn't actually aware of his existence. Um and So it was this kind of never-ending longing. And so eventually what happened was one night Harris and Klebold broke into a van uh, where there was kind of electronics and stuff stored and they were caught by police as they were driving away. And this led to them being charged with theft. But as... I kind of said eric was a bit of a charmer he he really had the the gift of the gab and so he kind of convinced the police to let them go and uh not to kind of fully charge them but to to downgrade it to this thing called diversion or diversion the idea with diversion was that it was like a program that that kids could go on if they had Done these things which would try to rehabilitate them and and then result in their kind of records being being cleared uh, rather than being something that they would always have to have to work to to not hide <laughs> always work to or just something that would always be there when they grew up so they put them on this diversion program, and this was designed to help rehabilitate them and wipe their record. And it included anger management courses, therapy, and community service. And as part of this, Eric was put on antidepressants for his anger. And actually, there's a good bit in there, because as, as part of it, like Eric was such a he was very manipulative and clearly could lie very well and there was there's a bit where he typed up like an apology note to the person that he stole the van off of saying like how sorry he was and all this type of thing and then on the same day like with the same date stamp in his own diary he basically wrote this like giant rant all about how awful humans are and how why would it be his fault for stealing something that was like just sitting there and all this type of stuff uh which clearly shows like his ability to be very two-faced i guess in terms of in terms of his his reality and the thing is with diversion is that it really seemed to kind of spur them more on into more action it really was like a turning point for them where I think from Dylan's point of view he was a bit like oh I've ruined my life I want to die this I'll just kind of go along with this thing and I think from Eric's point of view it spurred him along to be like oh my god everyone is awful I must kind of punish the world and (laughs) take out my take out the people that I, I want to take out so it really was like quite a catalyst in there in their planning and so it meant that they started building more and bigger bombs which i mean i didn't know you could build bombs this easily but kind of scary that you can hopefully can't anymore and so they started building more bombs and eric's dad even found one of them Uh, but eric reportedly seemed quite repentant Uh, but in reality just got much better at hiding the bombs and so clearly at some point in that time kind of after the diversion and and before 99 they decided that this was is something that they were going to do and it it's not really when you read their their notes and stuff it's not like just suddenly like oh we're going to do this like today we talked about this and we're going to do this it kind of like slowly seeps its way in through through their their talkings and clearly that makes sense because Clearly, they were both pushing the boundaries with each other, seeing where they would go, seeing if it was something that they would actually carry out. And so they then started mentioning it more in the diaries, and they referred to it as something called NBK, or Natural Born Killers, uh, which was also a film that they had watched in which a, a similar-ish shooting happened. And so, yeah, they they started calling it NBK and, and referencing that a lot in their diaries. But it, like it still seems like Dylan did have some kind of good things within him, um, and so he told Brooks Brown of Eric's website where Eric was talking about these bombs, which other people hadn't. And Brooks told his parents, who rang the police, and the police failed to do anything about it. So there was Dylan did try to make some type of an attempt to stop it. It seems this was this was quite a while before, but clearly he wasn't totally convinced of of what was happening. And then Eric soon took that and decided to move from a website into his notebook. They started thinking about a year um, in the future, so they kind of picked a date then at that point, a year in the future, uh, and they had a list of all the things that they had to do. So at some point they managed to acquire the guns that they wanted. Uh, They ended up asking one of their older friends to help them, and they got it from a gun show nearby, which I believe... When I was reading about it, that gun shows have like different gun laws to, to gun shops, which makes it potentially a lot easier to, to get weapons. And so they got all these large weapons. They got shotguns, which they sawed off the ends of. Um, and they, they started doing target practice and, and that type of thing in the run up to the event. As it got closer and closer to the date, uh, they decided to start filming themselves. And they started what's known as the basement tapes. And in these tapes, they basically just ranted at the camera about everyone they hated, about how they'd been wronged, about all the terror and rampage that were going to go on. Like, really sadly, they, I mean, the whole thing is sad, but they apologised to their parents and said that they were not to blame, which is so... I just think being... That, I mean, imagine being those parents. Oof. And they... To be honest, like the closer they got to the date of the actual massacre... They just became more and more brazen. Like it was clear that a lot of their friends, maybe not not one, knew all of it, but a lot of them knew different things, like some of them knew they were building pipe bombs. Some of them knew they had loads of guns at some point, like two weeks before the the thing, Eric tries to like recruit some guy from work by being like, "Shall we build a bomb and put it out there?" And the guy was like, "No." <laughs> um, so like clearly, there were warning signs, but but not particularly needed in this case and it got closer to the day they were really close to finishing high school they they'd done like their finals um but like i said they needed more time to get ammunition everything kind of seemed normal they went to their senior prom eric talked to a ma- marine recruiter everything was was kind of as it as it was and then the day began which i covered at the beginning of the episode Oh, so yeah, so that was kind of the build up to the day in terms of of their kind of escalation and and how they they were influenced and and what they started riding and building and and how they how they got there. So on the next episode, because we're already quite long into this, um, I'm going to talk about the reasons. So we're going to talk more about Dylan and Eric. We're going to dig into them. We're going to talk about their motivations, what people have kind of diagnosed them with. Uh, we'll talk about the aftermath of the event. We'll discuss one of the things that followed, like I said, Virginia Tech shootings, and then we'll also talk about what we learned, what has changed, uh, and what hopefully means that this won't happen again. I will cover references in the second episode as well. I think the second episode might be quite long, um, uh, but yes, I'll cover references in the second one as well. Um, there are some really, I read a really good book, um, so keep an eye out for that, uh, and that will be out next week. You don't need to wait two weeks, it will be out next week, so keep an eye out for that. But anyway, thank you so much for listening. Uh, much appreciated, as always. Uh, please do follow me on Instagram at When It Goes Wrong Pod um, or drop me an email to WhenItGoesWrongPod at gmail.com. Love hearing from you. <laughs> love any feedback. Um, love any episode suggestions, anything like that. Uh, so please do drop me a note. Uh, and I'd love to hear what you thought about this episode. And yeah, it's it's a hard one. But like I say, digging into people's psyches I think sometimes is quite interesting thank you all so much